Hello, fellow procrastinators. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, through making this thing, I realized that not only my friends listen to it, so uh, I realized maybe I should have a short intro to introduce the guest, tell people who they are. I want to keep it short, but um, but it needs to be here. So I'll get out of the way very quickly, but I want to tell you today about Dirk Brockman, the guest. He is a physicist. He's a complex systems researcher. He's a professor of biology at the Humboldt, Humboldt uh, University of Berlin. He's also at the Robert Koch Institute of Berlin, also a professor there. And before returning to Berlin to take up these prestigious posts, he was a professor at Northwestern uh, University. Um, he is a man of many, many, many talents. Uh, his work spans pioneering papers on mobility, papers on the spread of infectious disease, and lots of super cool papers on the merging of those two. Uh, for example, there's a super nice paper where he develops this idea of effective distance that was in science a couple years ago. But as I said, it's it's also broad interest. I, I looked on the web page and I saw a paper on the social network of bees. So many things going on. Um, finally, I should also say Dirk has been a crucial voice of reason uh, on COVID-19 since uh, the pandemic broke out worldwide, but also uh, very much so in his native uh, Berlin, Berlin, Germany. Let's call it Germany, his native Germany. They love him there. He's a kind of celebrity. We don't get into it because I think he's, he might be fed up uh, with it, but um, uh, also, uh, and, and he's done incredible and important academic work on COVID as well. Now, Dick's also a rebel. So he, he's, you cannot fence him in, control him. So he immediately rebelled against the rules even of this podcast. And when he said, here's my paper for the podcast, he sent someone else's paper. Um, and, uh, you know, experience tells me if uh, life says, let's take a detour, I say, let's take it. Let's go on the detour. Um, those are usually the best ones. So, so um, in the podcast, we talk about a review paper by Ilana Zilwa Rosenberg and Eugene Rosenberg uh, about the hollow genome theory of evolution. And let me tell you, it was glorious. It was crazy. I learned so much. I understand really that he's not just a physicist as I know him, but he's really a biologist. And he goes on, he's relentless, he's methodical, and he takes me into this, uh, in the podcast, amazing world of creatures and critters, little micro, uh, bi <laughs> micros or something. I was going to say microbiome, but uh, but um, anyway, <clears throat> small creatures, we get it. And um, and also, I, I detect uh, uh, an undercurrent of a message about how, uh, you know, dare I say political in this story about evolution as a massive collaboration, not as a, 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 a telling a story of evolution as, as this big network of, of uh, mutually supporting behavior. It's incredible. Uh, there are hand-drawn illustrations. Uh, you, don't, <laughs> you don't need to look at them to understand the awesome stories, but it makes sense. So anyway, if you love science and discovery, this is for you. Let's go. I'll get out of the way. Enjoy. <laughs> 
Perfect. Okay. All right, we're doing it. We're doing it. Uh, one more, one more. I need to switch these on awareness. They can be switched on awareness. What is this? What like, does that mean? So yeah, it's the opposite of noise canceling. It's yeah. when you want to, when, when you want you the want noise to, to pass through. Yeah. You want to hear if like, you know, the cat, you know, wants to get in the room or if someone calls me. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's a, basically it's like if you're too lazy to take your noise canceling headphones right. out of your ear, you just exactly like if you want to be you that just, person, you know, who's wearing yeah. headphones and talking to someone. That's the right. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. And when you like ride a bicycle or like drive in a car, that sort of thing, I guess it's a good idea. Yes, not to be killed in traffic. And I only discovered it by accident. Like you, you can press this button and it says noise canceling, and then it says off, and then it says awareness. Nice. I mean, awareness it's, all in this it's also some kind of like deep spiritual reminder, you know, to be in the moment. Yeah. This awareness. So but be aware of your environment. Yes. You could also just take out your earbuds and not listen to music or a podcast or, and, or a, you know, an audiobook. You can just walk and listen to your environment. Yes. I heard about this. Um, they used to yeah. do this in the old days, uh, apparently. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Dirk. That's it's funny. so good to see you. I'm gonna, I'm yes. gonna slowly get this started somehow. Um, I sure. already started recording. This is what they do on all the famous podcasts. They just kind of start rolling, and you can just ease in. Right. I see the recording, and I also made some drawings for this podcast. I love it. I I look forward to them already. Um, I want to have full disclosure here and kind of say that uh, you and I are not only uh, scientists together, but we're also kind of friends, I would say. I mean, actually, I would say we're friends. I would say that too. But I would be- I, I always was... refer to you as my friend in, in Copenhagen. Good, I'm, I'm glad because I think of you as my friend, but I was, as I was saying it, I was a little bit worried you'd be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, you know, like I, it's my well, if, acquaintance. If we lived in the same city, <laughs> we would probably be very, very good friends and, yes. and uh, see each other more frequently, I guess. Uh, it's uh, for sure I would love so uh, and but because of that I know things about you Dirk uh, that people don't know and I think we need to um, get out there right so so clearly it's well known that you're an amazing uh, scientist we know this already um, some people also know that you make the best keynote presentations the best uh, uh, you know in the software that that whenever you see a Dirk Brockman presentation Mm. It's it's unbelievable. It's like um, it's like a, the Pixar movies of uh, presentations with ingenious little animations and so on. Uh, I know that you uh, build model airplanes that can fly, that really can fly little airplanes. That's true, and helicopters. Yes, and helicopters. Yes. Now, yes, you, you've gone the, the drone, the drone, the drone way. Now everyone um, knows about this. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, yes. I. Um, I just like I, flying, you know, I, I, I like the, uh, the idea that you can build with your hands an instrument that can fly. It's, yes. Yeah, to me, it's, it's insane. just insane. Yes. And I mean, and I think the Mars helicopter, which is totally crazy. Yes. No, no, no. I, I, I think um, I agree. And I think it connects to something that I associate with you, which is a kind of uh, getting to you is a kind of you love uh, thoroughness and quality, right? Like this is, if I had to come up do, with something, yes. 
<clears throat> you like to do things well. And, and uh, you know, so some of the things you also do is in addition to writing papers, you build these in incredible uh, complexity explorables where you, uh, you, you figured out how to use a modern data visualization and you build these perfect little universes to explore ideas from science. So you do all these, you're, you're kind of a Renaissance uh, man. Um, That's nice. A little bit. Uh, so, so I, I needed to get that out there to so put the, put this okay. context. I hope it's, I hope it's okay. Um, but, but I guess, um, just to get interested, we need to know a little bit about, uh, you. Um, so, so tell me a little bit, um, about sort of, you know, like a, the framing, I guess is science is, is, um, there's so many reasons, different reasons people do science. So, so my guess was this right. and quality that you like, and science is a way of expressing yeah. that. But I guess you know what? What? Why are you doing this? Why are you a scientist? Well, well, that goes way back, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about um, sort of the origin of things, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a physicist by training. And when I started becoming interested in how the world works and what pieces hold the world together, it really started in physics because it was like the feeling that it conveyed to me when I read about relativity or, you know, cosmology or quantum mechanics it's this it's an almost religious experience when you when you ask yourself how could it be this way it's um it's very hard to convey what it but it's it's really an emotion so it's not um only trying to figure out how things work but once you have it's it triggers an emotion which uh, to me is just the closest to a sort of a spiritual experience that I can get. And I used to have that more. Sometimes I still have it now. It's more like related to biology nowadays. But back then, it was really physics yeah. and um, and forces and, you know, how things can be this way. And, and you know, you ask yourself, why? You know, what what's going on? And it's so weird. And sometimes I I'm so happy that I was exposed to this and that I, you know, learned all this stuff because, you know, in my mind, you know, you know, knowing that there are like four forces and that hold things together and how gravity works and, and space time, that sort of stuff is still with me a lot. Yes. But um, very early on, I guess it wasn't limited to, um, to that sort of thing. Um, and it's also not like the math that, uh, you know, often like in physics and theoretical physics, which is where I'm from, mathematics and physics, they go hand in hand. And I've uh, there are things in math that I really like a lot, especially weird little, you know, relationships that are surprising or, you know, you know, the distribution yes. of prime numbers, that sort of thing. But I, I see this more as a physicist, like a, a thing that is there and I look at it and I'm, I'm puzzled by it, but I've never seen this, you know, I'm, I've always been more like a physicist in terms of I'm interested in the things that I see. 
and I would like to see see them as they are. Yeah. And often in science, that's not the case. You know, people are have like massive biases and sort of distorted caricatures in their head, even like the best scientists. And and very early on, you know, other things started interesting, became interesting to me, especially in biology or social science. More so in biology, I would say. And, uh, you know, patterns that are interesting, like biology is full of patterns and weird structures like a tree. You know, yeah. why does a tree look like a tree? And um, yeah. and all these weird things of which, you know, they just came out of nothing, um, you know, for like yeah. a number of billion years. They just emerged. But, uh, and, yes. but, but do you think so? Sorry. Odd. Yes, it is odd. Yeah, go so, ahead. So I, so, I mean, part of why, um, you know, it's, it's fun to talk is I, I think a lot about these things as well and, and, and these patterns. And do you think that there is a kind of analogy somehow between the patterns that, you know, that are the laws of nature and the patterns that are, that we see in biology somehow that like my, my, the way that I think about it now is kind of that if you establish a set of rules, then, you know, like it, it very easily beautiful patterns follow. So, so it's a kind of game of life right. thinking, right. That, you know, you, you right. make a rule to say uh, you have your, your square and you make it black. And if it's the square neighborhood is this, you do this. And if the neighborhood mm -hmm. is something else, something else, right. It's from that simple rule. We, you know, like you get uh, dinosaurs and fish, uh, in those little patterns. Exactly. Right? Uh, and, but, but yeah. And it's beautiful. It's like the emergence of things that are hidden in these rules or, or yes. mathematical models. And, and then you, and then this happens and you're like, Whoa, you know, how can that be, yeah. you know, or like collective behavior is another, like swarming is another example, yes. But these patterns, I can, uh, I kind of drifted towards biology because they're like everywhere. It's like you walk through the forest, and everywhere are all of these interactions and all of these patterns, and they're yes. stable. And life has existed for such a massive amount of time, and it's so robust. And um, and or like embryogenesis, like how we, uh, you know, be, we are a cell when we begin. Yeah. You know, you you were like an egg in your mother. But, you know, your mother developed yeah. what would become sooner when she was an embryo in your grandmother. It's like crazy. And then yes. like the cell divisions occur and there's this massively complex organism that emerges, even like a fly or a worm there. It's just amazing. Um, and you look at this and you ask, you know, how can this be yes. just by a set of rules? And uh, it's crazy. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, for like complicated reasons, I also have a past with morphogenesis, and it is insane, right? That yeah, you know, like the the, the, totally the hand forms, uh, and and it's a it's a little thing, and then all of a sudden the cells between the fingers, they go like, all right, now it's time to turn yeah. off, so we can have yeah, <laughs> no, and it's like, how do they know where they are? How do they know that yeah. they are the cells yeah. that are between the? It's it's unbelievable, it's and pretty it's crazy. Still something we yeah. don't understand so so um yeah amazing and and um so so in doing science in a way you found this early on and you thought 
I I have to go in this direction. Is that is that the thing or yeah? Well, like it's it's also like a number of random events essentially. Like when I um got my masters, I was already working on something that was more related to life. Um, and and when I started my PhD, I was initially working on neural networks, which is another thing yeah. that I found amazing. That like you can, this was like you know I started reading about this in the '90s, in the early '90s, and uh, and there were like little computer programs that you could play with, and um, and I thought it was crazy that you can store like letters in a, in a bunch of neurons that are work, in, you know, that are just a set of equations in a computer. And now all of this is, has evolved to like, you know, software that can detect whether there's a cat in the picture, uh, which is, but basically the same principle. And, and then I went through this sort of brain, you know, I would like to understand the brain phase, but then that bored me again. It didn't bore me, but I thought it was very sort of in, in the community that I was in everyone was speaking about the brain, you know, the most complex, complex system in the universe. And I, you know, I was very annoyed by these kind of statements because they're very anthropocentric. And uh, how could you say that? You know, how, you know, you're just this sort of little mammal on earth and you say your brain is the most complex thing in the universe, let alone that you cannot even understand, say, a forest. Just because you don't understand it, you can just not claim your little organ in your head is the most complex. And I, that annoyed me. And, and there was a lot of that in neuroscience back then. Yeah. And um, also, you know what? You know, it's just, you know, a brain. And, you know, why it's interesting, but, um, you know, it's as interesting to understand a worm to me now um, or a tree. But it's also, forest. but and, is it um, also like a thing with me and the brain? I think is also that it seems to me that the gap is kind of too big. You know, like um, the worm is nice because it feels like we're getting close to being able to really understand. It. You know, like they mapped out. If you think morphogenesis for some of the, yeah. for some of the worms, yeah. like they mapped out like every cell of it. Like it only has a thousand cells or whatever, so they know right. like this. This right. cell is going to turn into like these. Yes. And, uh, yes. I know they know exactly. And they always have the same number of cells, etc. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in that sense, it seems the brain to me is you know, like, it would be great to understand it. And, and I agree with the arrogance of saying it's the most complicated thing ever built, but at the same time, it is pretty complicated. And, and somehow to me, there's this idea that, yeah, the gap is too big. I don't feel that I can, contribute anything yet with the kind of things that, that, right. that, that the kind of insights that I would like to provide where, you know, different systems, it feels that you can, you know, like there's more data, there's more understanding of the wiring and how everything works together. So you can actually begin to really not just have associations, but something more, right? The ideas of mechanisms and so on. I get it. I, I just felt like I needed to go get away from this because I felt it was like I'm trying to understand an organ that I have in my head and there's so much more yes. out there. You know, it's like this and it's I've always been kind of adverse to in any and also in social science and 
any kind of science that puts like an emphasis on, on our special dispensation of, you know, being a smart primate and there's so much and like, you know, if you look, look at it, like in the grand scheme of things, there have been lots of hominids like, you know, um, like us, and they came and they disappeared again. And that's probably also going to happen to us. And, um, you know, we've been like the most successful hominid Homo erectus uh, was around, I think, for a time, pretty much like uh, T-Rex. Um, you know, it appeared and it disappeared again. And that's probably also going to happen to us. And I, I, I see no um, reason to believe that this isn't so. It's we're just not very successful as a species in the grand scheme of, scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, at least I hear uh, this is not an area of my expertise at all, but I hear people saying that that uh, yeah. probably this century is a pretty critical time in either figuring out very long term better solutions or um, right. uh, kind of uh, for us, not for yes. the planet. No, no, no. The planet doesn't really care much about us. There's so many interesting. I mean, I really think it's very naive to or and it's also very egocentric to think that we can do anything to this planet we can't you know it's like life has been around for like three billion years or you know approximately and it's been covered by ice for long periods of time entirely almost there have been like mass extinctions many of them and you know we cannot get rid of life or alter it in any way um, that is comparable to what other organisms have like uh, you know the organisms that started making oxygen they shaped the earth more than any of us or i just recently learned there's an, a small organism in the ocean that they discovered like in the 80s it's a very small um, photosynthetic bacterium and it's the most abundant species on earth. And they discovered it in the eighties, I think, or even in, in yeah. the 90s, I can't remember. And it's responsible for like a substantial fraction of the oxygen that is produced. And it's this tiny little, you know, it's called, uh, what is it called? Prochlorococcus, I think. It's massively abundant. It's the most successful and most abundant organism and it gener generates all this oxygen. And we were so dumb, we had to wait until like the 80s to discover it. Um, so there's so many examples like this. Yes, and it, I, I, th I think it'll be so interesting to see, you know, also, so, so, so I think we should keep this, uh, this podcast uh, COVID uh, free. Uh, since, yes, uh, oh yeah, that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> I agree. Um, uh, uh, but, but, um, but I think you know climate change is another one of those reasons why there might be problem trouble on the horizon in a way that that right for us whatever, as a yes. species. But whatever is going on, you know, like it's pretty clear that uh, as a species we've been successful enough to uh, impact impact the climate in a you know in a in a substantial, sure. mm -hmm. substantial way. And and I think it's interesting to think about this thing with the technological solutions to climate change. You know, some some of the optimists say like we're we're going to fix it with technology, and this thing that you bring up with this um, this unknown bacterium reminds me. You know, it, it's kind of like um, breastfeeding for babies. 
you know, that, that we kind of mm-hmm. think, you know, yeah, we looked into what's in the milk and um, mm-hmm. we can do something that's, uh, that's better. Let's, let's put together right. the formula and it's going to be great. And, and I mean, right. um, and then we begin to study breastfeeding and we figure out that it's this insane dance of signaling hormones and in right. transfer. And micro, microbes. Yeah, exactly. It's, and, um, and, and so, so that, that these, these processes exactly because they've been evolved over uh, a long, long time scale, too big for us to really kind of fathom and imagine they, they can really develop this in, incredible complexity. Um, yeah, and what you just said is also like a signal of what is uh, pervasive in science and humanity is the arrogance with which we think we can outperform nature in their in in her design and and that's nonsense exactly and and so i mean i i had some more stuff i wanted to talk about before we got into mm-hmm. the paper but i feel like we're so close now we're close yes we're getting there yes that that we just we need to go straight into that and maybe then we'll wrap up with some more right. uh, silliness of, of my design so so as as a as you know you're a, clearly a rebel and so as a guest you said i want to talk about this paper and you sent a paper that was not by you which i right. thought was a uh very uh cool <laughs> very cool uh move uh so but but and it's about an idea that you've been thinking about for a long time because i remember right. you sharing a book about this with me years ago correct so right. let's so so clear i was too lazy to read the book and i've been too lazy okay. to read the paper you should it will change your mind but i mean but maybe we can start now and you can tell me about it and then uh we can circle back to uh to some some silliness or maybe we just record the podcast and we see see what we're doing but but uh yeah tell me about this paper who what's so, the title of it who are the authors and then we can kind of get into the meat of um discussing it so here's the paper that's the first uh, page of a paper and the title i'm going to read it to you because i can't, i didn't memorize it it's, it's long called it the, yeah it's It'll a long quiet. title it's the role of microorganisms in the evolution of animals and plants the hologenome theory of evolution and it's by ilana zilba rosenberg and eugene rosenberg and it's a review article a short one and it represents really uh and it's from 2008, so it's it's not really, you know, a classic, but it's also not very recent. And it's representative of a a set of, you know, research ideas that, in my view, are going to change the way we look at evolution and biology and and how things are connected in the living world. And I picked this paper because it just compiles a few ideas about this. So in in essence, uh, what the authors say, among others that started looking into this around that time, is that it makes no longer sense to look at evolution and life in terms of isolated species that eat each other but rather as you know holobionts so what's a holobiont that's an animal or a plant 
together with all its microbes that live in it or on it. And it turns out that, you know, we've heard stuff about the gut microbiome, you know, we have like our guts and they're like uh, microorganisms living in it and they metabolize stuff and they're essential for our health. You know, when people have a, a messed up microbiome, they may develop allergies, et cetera, or get sick. You know, we, we know all this, but yep. the, the fact is that there's not a single plant species there's not a single animal species nor neither has there ever been an animal species or plant species or fungus that has not worked in a very tight and dense collaboration with bacteria uh you know in life and so and that's you know maybe just a, a fact first but it's also a paradigm shift in the way we think. And there are really yes. two things that are involved here. That's evolution and, you know, say Darwinian evolution, you know, variation and natural selection and, um, and heredity. Um, but there's also a perspective on microbes. And that's quite interesting. So these people say, you know, because there's not a single, let's think about it like a host species, a human or a, or a mouse or an insect, and they are covered with bacteria and they live in their guts and, you know, sometimes even in their cells. And that's one unit in evolution. So when the processes, you know, the process of evolution is, you know, people, you know, people, not animals or plants or species, they replicate. And then they give these, not only, you know, do they produce offspring, but they transmit also the microbes to their offspring. And there are various techniques they have, you know, nature has developed to accomplish that. And the variation and selection is also happening, not on say the human species or a mouse by itself or a tree, but on this entire system of living entities that are bound together. And, and that has a lot of implications because A, all of these relationships are symbiotic. So they're positive. You know, the, you know, the microbes that live in your gut, they help you metabolize stuff and you help them live in, their, in the protected environment of your gut. Yeah. And there are countless examples of this, and they're not sort of sort of fringe phenomena. They're the generic feature of nature. And what is happening here, in my view, and there's more and more evidence about this, is that collaboration and networking and symbio symbiotic relationships are the generic feature of natural systems. And this is kind of a in conflict with the general ideas that we associate with Darwinian evolution, like competition, you know, outperforming others. And we've, you know, when we watch a film, a documentary on television about nature, there's like animals that eat other animals that eat other animals. There's males that compete for reproduction in front of the females. All of this is happening, but that's fringe. It's not generic. When you look at nature under a microscope, it's all about networking and collaboration. 
But do you think it also has to do somehow with size scales so that collaboration and competition isn't is is like at one scale? It's, uh, I mean, of course, societies sure. happen at the same scale, but, but there's also something about the microbes and us, you know, kind of, you know, when, when I was a kid, I remember this, this amazing uh, thought Maybe it was like in a Superman magazine or something like this. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that, you know, the atom kind of looks like a little planet. And so you imagine that right. it could be mm -hmm. this kind of fractal nature of the universe where you could shrink down. And then there was like a little universe inside each atom that we <laughs> that we live inside. And then uh, you right. could scale out and they were kind of they would be unaware that we were we were there on on the different level and here it seems to me somehow it it there's like a you know like a different vibe that these these microbes are inside us they're part of us and they're living in the gut but the, but that's their universe right that's their world or something the new uh, correct correct that that's it and that's true for every plant and every animal species and but it's, it doesn't even make sense to separate this anymore in terms of understanding evolutionary processes. So we need an evolutionary theory that goes beyond the concept of individual, yes. that goes beyond uh, the concept of species. And, you know, if you go into the micro scale, it's like in physics, you know, there was classical physics. And then when people looked at um, a different scale, they thought, hmm, you know, you know, the, the rules are weird here yeah stuff doesn't behave anymore the way we are used to it and i think uh, when like quantum mechanics developed there was a lot of resistance in the in the physics community that you know towards this like new totally bonkers theory that tried to capture what was going on and i think this is also now happening in biology because we have all of these technologies uh that tell us about microbiological environments you know there are biofilms where bacteria work together and countless examples and we have to you know, remember that we you know large animals or large plants are really not a lot you know in terms of species they're like a few million species of animals and plants but they're billions of species of yeah. bacteria and so we can we are negligible you know humans are negligible it's i mean the the earth has been ruled by bacteria for billions of years and they came and they never left and um and i think that's an important insight and just to put it into context um, because we are talking about evolution and bacteria or micro, micro, microbiological life. Like when we rewind time a hundred years, say, you know, at the end of the 19th century, you know, when, when Darwin developed his theory for evolution and like the, the, and, you know, his theory of evolution was integrated with, uh, you know, heredity, etc there was like this new synthesis suddenly we we knew what was going on and when you see this you know there are these concepts you know survival of the fittest that were misinterpreted you know as as you know 
fit just meaning you know you you fit into an environment yeah and uh often like in the victorian area of of great britain that vibed very well with uh with the political spectrum so it was no surprise that like social darwinism was derived from this and you know the you know all of this was uh explained by combat and um and competition and uh, you know a fight for resources etc and at the same time there was like the microbiologists that started looking at um bacteria and they discovered that some bacteria cause disease which was a paradigm shift at that time when robert koch uh, you know he, my institute that i work for is named after him he discovered that some diseases are caused by life forms that was crazy to us it's uh you know we know it mm -hmm. but that back then it was like totally new but immediately everyone thought that bacteria are bad when you say today ah you know bacteria everyone thinks it's bad but the fraction of pathogenic bacteria and the set of all species of bacteria is negligible it's almost like a freakish um property to be pathogenic to cause disease yes but when koch did this in in the at the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century every you know he was very successful there was suddenly hygiene you know hospital hygiene and and you know a, a way to um cultivate these bacteria in the lab and develop medication you know penicillin all of that came out of this and so what we and in addition like the you know darwin evolution imprinted on our interpretation of social systems as much as Koch's work imprinted on our image of microbes and that is like even a hundred years later it's still lasting with us interestingly at the same time there was a russian school of microbiologists that looked at it in a different way now they thought that uh, multicellular organisms were collections collectives of individual cells that work together as a state yeah and uh, you know they they knew that there are other life forms that were single celled and multicellular organisms they thought ah this is just single cells and they just work together because back then they didn't know anything about the genome etc they just saw a bunch of cells in a highly structured organism and they thought they work together and others looked at you know bacteria as collections of organisms that exchange chemistry and they you know metabolize stuff and whatever one produces as food for another so they really emphasized the collaborative aspect and it climaxed in in a in a hypothesis that was made more than 100 years ago when a russian scientist said eukaryotes which is plants fun you know fungus and um and animals their cells have all of these organelles in them as opposed to bacteria that are quite uniform inside to some extent and when you look at an animal cell they're like these things that are called mitochondria and they produce energy for plants and animals and they looked at you know this guy looked at them and said they look like bacteria maybe at some point in the history of life uh 
uh, you know, two bacteria, essentially not a bacterium, but something similar, swallowed a bacterium and then they stayed together. Yeah. With a process called uh, endosymbiogenesis. And the same for, for plants. They have like chloroplasts and they look like uh, uh, cyanobacteria. And, um, and he hypothesized this. It was forgotten for a long time. And then only later, uh, Lynn Margulis, an evolutionary biologist and, uh, and microbiologist, she, she was kind of a rebel. She was a real rebel. I mean, she has like legendary arguments with Richard Dawkins uh, about uh, symbiosis in, in, in nature. She said, okay, this happened during the lifetime, you know, during the history of Earth, this happened a couple of times, these uh, symbiogenesis events. And everyone thought she was totally nuts. Yeah. And uh, especially these traditional old men, evolutionary biologists, uh, and no, um, you know, yeah, Darwinian evolution and neo-Darwinisms, Darwinists, um, they were very much against her ideas. And, and, and then only like later when genetic methods were available, it was shown that she was right. And there are countless examples of this. And I think our, like our scientific bias of evolutionary biology of the late 19th century and microbiology of the early 20th century really totally twisted our view of how nature works. And this, this paper that is the topic of today is part of sort of a new like a paradigm shift in the way we see natural systems yeah i think this is this is awesome and and you're not going to get any pushback from me because i'm not kind of you know um i it makes it makes perfect sense to me i'm not really closely wedded to this uh existing framework so to me it, it makes perfect sense and it makes perfect sense in the light of everything we know and so i guess there are kind of two things that stick out to me so number one which is a thing that i completely love is that <clears throat> it's conceivable that a huge branch of science has been going in like a pretty wrong direction for a long time, right? There was something completely right. fascinating about in this day and age when we think we know everything that it could be that actually, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've kind of, you know, taken a slightly wrong turn and, and we have to course correct. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's the case, yeah. I mean, of course it is kind of like quantum theory. You can, a lot of all the knowledge we built up is still there, but I, I like this idea that, that we can still be wrong. That's to me is, is completely fascinating. Right. Then there's another thread that, so, so maybe we can come back to that, but then there's another thread, which is this, this thing about, and coming back to our kind of warm up to talking about the paper, this thing about human beings meddling with nature in a way that's fundamentally unlike how nature develops stuff, right? So, so, mm -hmm. so for example, we start saying, all right, um, we start having hospitals, we start opening people up and, um, you know, this discovery by, uh, about bacteria and so on, in a way is pretty um, important in a hospital because even though we mm -hmm. have the symbiotic uh, relationship and so on, if you open up, you know, like there's a wall that was never opened up evolutionarily and we should be really careful uh, because if we just kind of take all the outside microbes that are optimized for this and put inside the belly and then close it up, 
it can be dangerous. And, and, and so do you have any thoughts about this kind of that these two different methods where, where we're making these primitive um, or at least maybe not even primitive, but fundamentally different, you know, it's the same thing to fixing the, the, the earth uh, through uh, climate change, through technology or whatever, mm -hmm. that like, there's a, there's a tension here. And of course, I guess we can, we can learn something about how to be better at doing our human interventions in natural systems. But, but what are your thoughts on, on this kind of tension about these two different ways of interacting with bodies and nature? Well, I think in terms of like uh, how, how this works, um, there, there are various events that happened. Um, one is that, and that's quite generic in science. When people discover, make a discovery like Koch about you know how bacteria can cause disease, especially successful men in my experience, and especially when they get older, they put a lot of emphasis on their discovery, even if there's more evidence that speaks another language yes. or like points into a different direction. I discover that more and more. So they, that that's part of it. So there's um, a distorted perception of reality that puts your own discovery in the focus. And we didn't want to talk about COVID, but um, let me just give you one example because it's representative. Um, yes. now, a pandemic is clearly a dynamic phenomena that occurs on very many scales. A lot of things play a role. Mm -hmm. There's a virus. So you have to understand how it interacts in the body. You know, virologists look at that. There's transmission dynamics, which is, you know, there are aerosol researchers that look into this and epidemiologists. And there are people that like you that study contact networks. Um, and there's insights of that. And then there's uh, social science plays a role because fear of the pandemic uh, has an impact on how it unfolds, psychological processes, behavioral processes. So it's all of it's happening on all of these economic processes, and all of, on all of these levels, this is happening. And when you talk to people about this, and you put a lot of experts on the table or at a table, and they report, my if a majority of them, they see their own aspect of the pandemic as blown up. And so they, you know, they have a distorted perception of the entire system. That happens often when you put a lot of experts in a room that, um, that, that, you know, put a stronger emphasis on what they see than on what the others see. And this whole idea about complexity sciences, I always say, you know, it's like science, make, doing science like a fungus. It's more like you have like these different areas of expertise and things that play a role in this entire thing. And you may know that a fungus, you know, when you walk through the forest, you see only the fruiting body, but the, the species itself is like under the surface and it has yep. like this network that connects like this tree with this tree and so it's very distributed very networky and 
when you have a lot of sort of silverback old white men at a table, they only see what they see and, um, and they don't listen and they don't try to use another person's perspective and to, and to get sort of a holistic picture of what's going on. And I think that's um, in this entire sort of evolutionary dynamics, biological systems and microbiota, there are many examples of why this happened. And then it's translated into social aspects like uh, social Darwinism. You know, they, these ideas were so convincing at the end of the 19th century that people used it for because it was resonating with their political ideas of, say, in, in uh, the British Empire, you know, and uh, colonization. And it's really funky because really famous people like Pearson, you know, of the Pearson correlation. He did statistics and, you know, he really, really invented statistics in a sense. And um, he was a um, social Darwinist. He was a eugenicist and was really uh, uh, proposing that, you know, people that were not as fit or as good uh, should not uh, have offspring to make the human race better. And the same is true for uh, Fisher, a, a super famous, uh, you know, population geneticist. You know, he was um, uh, applying these concepts to nations. And, you know, even like after the World War II, he was like writing um, positive things about how we could understand, you know, that the, the Nazis were doing the best for their people, that sort of stuff. And yeah. all of this, has like a massive impact on the way we work as a society. And these really, really deep uh, and, uh, you know, twisted ideas, they're still in us. And so my hope is that when we look at the microbiological world and, and see that we're really collaborative entities, you know, that we host like all of these microbes and also on a larger scale that we see ourselves as nodes in a network of, of species um, that collaborate, it's, it's more beneficial. It's just more more, it's much more effective and it's better for everyone. Yes, but, but I mean, so, so first of all, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with you and, and, you know, we, we carry so many biases with us and everything that we do. And, and, and I, you know, and you and I do as well, right? Like, um, that's like the first, right. first totally. step is to understand, to realize it. Yes. But I mean it, my question, like you gave definitely an answer to my question, but I meant it in a much more literal sense in a way that I think okay. it's fascinating to say that it's true that, I'm convinced I, I buy your thing that we are holobionts and that, you know, mm -hmm. we come as assemblages of us also and a lot of other world. I know I'm going to be dropping yeah. it in casual conversation yeah. all the time. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, but, but I, I buy this, but as a human being acting in the world, I have no power to interact in this kind of sophisticated, you know, um, or with this sophisticated orchestrated 
uh, collaboration that's happening. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if if there's a, a ruptured appendix, I I can't. You know, like we can't. The only way we can do is like we take a scalpel, we open up the belly, sure, mm -hmm. and 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 we mess with it. And the same thing with climate right. change is like even though mm -hmm. that the ideal solution would be much more kind of whole earth and uh, do, doing mm -hmm. something orchestrated. We're going to have to try the technology stuff because, sure. um, yeah. you know, what else, what, what else we're going to do. So I'm more interested in this tension with us as actors who have no tools to uh, interact with this complex biological reality that you're describing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, so how do we? I, I understand. I understand. Mm -hmm. Well, we should like use technology not to, um, in a way that, um, or like in a context where we know that um, this, all these bacteria say live in and on us. You know, if if you have a ruptured appendix, sure, you need to you know be in a sterile room and you know make sure that not some of the few pathogenic bacteria get inside your guts, for instance. Yep. But at the same time, you have to keep in, in your mind that you may not, you know, f use antibiotics as much as people used to, because then you generate, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria because they just evolve much faster than, than we do. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep it in your mind. It's not like a non. So this realization is not so much a you know back to nature, live in the in the woods kind of idea. But it's also it's it's not this black and white. We need to understand it. You know, if you find out that kids, for instance, when they you know live in a farm, are less likely to develop a number of allergies because they are exposed to bacteria more than like the city dwellers of like freakish parents that sterilize their children's hands twice a minute. It's not good. And, and so it's always like there's sort of a middle way. Yeah. And it would be actually quite interesting to see a combination. And we see that already. For instance, like whenever I see like a picture of a, a skyscraper that is covered with plants, I think that's nice. You know, it's a space for living but it, you know, it uses some of the technology of nature yeah. in order to create a good uh, environment. And, and so we need to think more about both um, aspects. And what we can learn in terms of society is that you know, collaboration and networking uh, in a positive way has been selected uh, by natural selections as a successful strategy. Yeah. And um, so it's both really. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's no, not, there's not a tension. No. It's just a, you know, um, both things um, add to the, I guess, human experience. Yeah. And so, so the, and the, another thing that I had in mind, you saw me scribbling before when you were starting mm -hmm. on the paper is so, so we know that genetically there is variability across uh, individuals. What does mm -hmm. this holobiome do for variability across individuals? Do you think? Uh, presumably, it allows oh. us to specialize to environments, but does it, you know, increase variability way more, or does it 
make us more uh, the same because we compensate? Like, are there any thoughts about this? Well, like variation is the currency of evolution, right? Yes. So it's it's the power and variability is typically associated with our genome. And we have like, let me just give you the example for, for humans. And um, yep. we have about around about 20,000 genes, a bit more, and it's not really, it depends a little bit on the definition, but say that's the order of magnitude. And like even way back, like 2008, people were estimating what the genome of your microbiome is because all the bacterial species, they contribute genes. Yep. And it's you know usually one or two orders of magnitude larger. So in terms of like the stuff that the genes produce, if you look at your body, if you look at your bloodstream, there's like maybe 50% of the, uh, of the biochemicals that are in your bloodstreams come from bacteria. So in terms of like what you are, chemically you're at least if not more bacterium than you are a human being and the variation in this comes mostly from the bacterial species maybe you know you are just your genes genes are just there to build a brain and to have a body but everything else is done by the bacteria and in terms of cells your body consists of like a hundred billion human cells and maybe even like that number and potentially more bacterial cells because they're smaller. Yeah. And so in terms of cell count, it's also pretty evened out. And that's, you know, for us the case. And the variation is in the, in the genes and what's, and what's interesting about the micro microbes is that they, you can not only, I mean, they evolve faster, so they're more responsive in terms of adaptation to new environments. For instance, you start, you know, you become vegan, for instance, then your gut microbiome changes, you know. Um, you know, the, the distribution of different species changes, so it is adapted much quicker to your new diet. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you live in a different environment um, because there's also, you know, lots of bacterial species on your surface and then may change from A to B. So it makes you just like a brain can adapt to different stimuli and trigger very quickly different responses. The same is true for your gut microbiome. Yeah. And there's a lot of lots of variability on one hand, but there's also a lot of variability on how this collaboration works. I mean, the craziest, I need to give you this example because it's so crazy, um, I thought. There, there are two crazy examples and uh, do you want to hear them? Yeah? Yes. Because I made two drawings for them. So, yes. Um, and I want I still want to show you my drawings. Absolutely. The, um, so one is a pretty crazy example and um, it, it's about an insect called aphid. It's like the little, little animals that live on plants and they you know, are parasitic to plants. I'm going to show you my drawing. Yes, do it. I'm just made for this podcast. Here's, they look like this. Can you see Nice. This? Yes, yeah. I see it. It's fantastic. So they, yeah. You have to photograph it so we can put it in the show notes in yes. case someone listens uh, ear, ear we, style. We can do that. So they're very tiny, like a, you know, a few millimeters, and they're like bright green often. And they 
they have like 80 cells in their inside. They're called um, bacteriocytes. Mm -hmm. And when you look inside these cells, they inside of these cells are like 6 million bacteria. They're endosymbionts. So they live, these are bacteria that live in the cells of this little insect in a collaboration. And, um, you know, inside these cells, they, these bacteria, they, you know, do some biochemistry that is beneficial to the host. And at the same time, the host, the uh, aphid, just contains them. And they're being passed on from generation to generation through the eggs of this insect. Yep. And this has been going on for 180 million years. So like, you know, the Cambrian explosion was like 500 million years ago, I think. Yeah. So for like almost half that period of time, this connection between this insect and, and these small little bacteria has been going on. They just crawled in this yep. insect and said, let's go, we can do this together. And what's so funny is that this bacterium inside the cells of this uh, insect, they have some of the, one of the smallest genomes of all living creatures because they don't need the genes anymore. So they just get rid of all the rubbish they didn't need. They just kept all the genes that they need for this cooperation. It's almost like a melting of two species together. Yes. I love and it's it. been going on for 200 million years. And that's like a very tight collaboration. And it, there are many other insects that do the same thing um, with different species. But it's almost like the continuum limit of this yes. uh, mitochondrial adaption you were right. talking about before, right? That, that Correct. They, they, this is how these types of processes maybe happen, right? That, that in the end, they go like, you know what, let's just, let's just merge up or... Right. And evolutionary, it plays a big role because like, you, you know, one of the problems that Darwin had with his evolution was like this gradual variation, right? Yes. And, but now imagine like a new collaboration happens just instantaneous because like there's this merger and suddenly this new insect has like the power of generating new chemicals for itself just by accident, this happened. And so that's why, and this is like ongoing research now, how this genome or holobiont evolution is happening by like these new establishing new relationships and they're being selected. Yes, but I, but I absolutely love this idea. And in a way, it also connects to our kind of initial discussion on morphogenesis, how things take form. And, <clears throat> but this is also almost, I keep thinking, you know, also how we kind of maintain form, right? It's like the, what is it? The ship of Theseus, ship of Perseus. Uh, I can't remember, some Greek hero, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They had the ship lying down in Athens and it kept falling apart and they kept putting in new boards. And then the paradox is, well, when is it the same? When it, is it, mm -hmm. does it stop? Like you exchange all the woods, this ship is still standing. And, and we've been thinking about this or, the way that I heard this example given in a way is, is that the individual atoms in our cells are also replenished, right? So, so literally mm -hmm. like 10 years from now, all that's left. You're of, a different, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like it goes slowly in the brain and the bone marrow, but everything else is just 
in flux, right? But what you're saying mm-hmm. is that, they, that this flux is even crazier because it's yeah. also, you know, like let's say that I move to, uh, I don't know, like North Africa or somewhere that's very different from here. Probably my hologene genome is going to adapt to different foods, different temperatures, Correct. different so and so, and and and. And so, 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 you know, and it's going to affect me because some of these chemical products that are being produced are also going to be different. So, so, you know, yeah, it's the, how we, like, we are these, and it comes back to our discussion about patterns, right? We're these kind of fixed patterns that are robustly maintained throughout, through this enormous uh, flux and adaptation. Right. And then it's like, there's a great variability, like the, the little insects that I just discussed. There, this relationship is millions, hundreds of millions of years old and very tight. And there's like this almost melting, like I said, of species. But there, that doesn't have to be that way. You know, no. it could also be very optional. They're like this, this um, you know, class of organisms called, called lichens like you see them on rocks, like these yep. little green sort of yes. uh, organisms. And, you know, sometimes you you think this is, you know, just a very slowly glow- growing plant or something or a moss. Yeah, that's what I thought. But but it's not, you know, it's a fungus. Yes. And, um, and it's a fungus that is in a symbiotic relationship with, uh, with algae or cyanobacteria. So they're like these two species and they're saying, let's work together. And it's a symbiotic relationship. But when they come together, they form these weird little organisms that, you know, these, these lichens that grow very slowly, you know, like a, normally like not more than a millimeter a year. They can get very old, like up to like four and a half thousand years. That's crazy. They're, they're some of the oldest living individuals on the planet. Yeah, nice. And... Um, and they they cover like five percent of the surface of the Earth, so they're also very successful. But what I think it, I think is funny is that there can be different combinations, and some of these have algae or you know a fungus that can also exist without their uh, cooperating agent. Mm-hmm. And when they do, they have a different form. So when they come together, they build a different morphology than when they live by themselves. So, you know, you have like these two and they, you know, have their form and their shape and their phenotype, they come together, there's something new. And it's crazy and super successful. So it's, it's really also sometimes optional. It's like when you go and live in a different place, you may be exposed to other bacteria that are there. You will, you know, get them somehow and then your system will adapt. In fact, there, there were studies about the microbiome in different cultures and different groups. And uh, even among families, they're closer, uh, the microbiota in terms of the species they, uh, you know, they contain than among people that don't live together. So there's a lot of um, dynamics in it. What about kind of... So I'm, I continue to be obsessed about this, the human meddling, right? Because I'm a human mm. and I want to meddle. So right. is there a sense of, you know, so, so my body can produce stuff, 
like a, mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the nutrients that I need, I I can produce in many different ways. So, so then I'm pretty robust. But then there are also stuff that I need to eat, and then there's stuff that's generated by my microbiome. Mm-hmm. Are there any theories about kind of what's driving, you know, what compounds I can make versus that the, my my uh, part, my my uh, little mm. bacterial friends can make versus what comes in externally. Is that driven by evolution or, you know, like if I'm starving, I, you know, God, are there any thoughts on this? I'm not sure actually. Like in terms of like the different biochemistry that is generated by bacteria versus us, or the host. I'm sure there is differences yeah. because, um, you know, when there are experiments on mice that you um, that you grow in a lab without any bacteria, like they're sterile. Mm-hmm. And so studies have been, you know, have been carried out on mice like this, and they they don't become very healthy. They they survive, but their metabolism is entirely different. They develop all sorts of diseases. Yeah. And um, and and you know. But even if you do that and then you infest them with a microbiota, they recover. So something is just missing. I don't know in terms of like the biochemistry what exactly yeah. it is, um, but but it is essential. And people are meddling with this. I mean, there's even this. Um, it's a it's a little weird, um, and I hope. Um, I'm just going to say it. So um, there are a lot of autoimmune diseases that are not curable, a lot of chronic diseases that are caused by an individual becoming allergic to itself. Yes. And, um, And some of these cannot be healed. And some of them are very dramatic. And so what people started doing is Um, they started taking someone else's poop and put it in, you know, the butt of the person with the disease. So they would infest the person with microbiome samples, microbiota samples, uh, hoping that these bacteria will generate the necessary chemistry to uh, heal the immune system of the person. And that has been extremely successful in many cases. Yep. So where no medication works, nothing works. You just need poop from another person, and um, and then the bacteria. That's actually also how like many mammals, like cows and other other animals like that, they that eat plants. Like a cow cannot digest plant. A cow needs lots of bacteria that live in the rumen, like in the stomach of the cow, in order to uh, cut cellulose into little sugars and metabolize it. And when the, when a the little cow is born, it is exposed uh, to the poop of the mother and ingests immediately um, some of the bacteria that are required for this. That's how it works. So that's in that case how it is transported from one generation to the next. But this also with humans, case. by the way. Yeah, exactly. This I, I remember someone uh, share, sharing that now that we're on the poop uh, yeah. story, that exactly yeah. like the way that babies are born, like a similar. They thing. need to uh, be infected with poop. Yeah, yes. it's very, and yeah, but just the story and the way we smirk at this indicates how we bias we are towards like this hygiene concept that was put in place like a hundred years ago. 
Yeah, sure. It's just, you know, it's disgusting to us, but it's, um, it's quite natural. Yes. And it, and it's, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast. I looked into this a little bit about these like uh, transplants and, mm -hmm. you know, like the rebel scientist, because, you know, like it's hard to get approval mm -hmm. for this. So they were just kind of mm -hmm. like, well, mm -hmm. we're just going to, let's just try it. You know, uh, yeah. there's some, some crazy stories about this. Um, the last, so I have one more kind of personal question. So, so I was listening to, um, to another podcast with some of these longevity people about living mm -hmm. a long time. And they love to talk about compounds that they eat to, to, um, to uh, stay alive longer. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking maybe I should, uh, should I eat some uh, compounds and, and full disclosure, I'm not eating any compounds uh, yet, but it makes me think, you know, what, what do you think the role because it, it's on this meddling track again, right? We, mm -hmm. We're these complicated beings, uh, huge collaborations, complex things going on. And then we're like, yeah, you know, I'm going to eat some uh, MNM uh, as a precursor for NAD mm -hmm. because NAD is like a, a longevity right. drug or whatever. Like, what do you think about compounds? Is that this is as bad? Is that, the, you know, like similar to like what, what any thoughts? Just curious, now that we're talking about this? I, I can think about it spontaneously. And um, to me, it seems a reductionist, like a reductionism in the wrong direction. You know, it's also a simplification of things and everything is very connected. There might be some evidence that if you eat this compound, then it does this and it's good. And But it's also, you know, in line with this sort of single cause, single uh, event or single yeah. effect thinking, which is, if anything, like a really, really coarse um, approximation to how things work, apart from the fact that, you know, it may not be even, a, you know, it's a very Western goal to live very long. And yeah, it's yeah, also, yeah. you know, triggered by an individualistic approach on things, which is also derived from like this whole spirit of Darwinian evolution, you know, the individualism and, you know, um, so I don't know. I, I don't give it much thought. I think it's a little no, no. simple. Yeah, I, I agree, but I was just, it, I was just thinking about it and, and it just kind of fit in with this simplistic one you know, one cause or yeah, yeah, yeah. one, if like, like in this, in this world of orchestration and collaboration and complexity, it seemed like a very, you know, like this human one dimensional way of getting right. at least. All right. We're, we're right. getting, we're getting close, close to the hour. Uh, okay. Go on for six more if we needed to, but we should wrap up. But you said you had two examples and two drawings, and I would. Yes, I want to show you the other drawing. I was, I was okay. actually quite thinking that I may not have the opportunity to show no. it, but I will show you the second drawing, which is also an interesting collaboration um, and symbiosis in nature. Let me find it for you. So here's the other drawing. Can you see what it shows? A cuttlefish, maybe. Yes, it's a little squid. And it's only three centimeters long and it lives in Hawaii. So it's like tiny. Yes. And it's quite interesting because you know that these, uh, these animals, they can, you know, change their appearance uh, using 
specific mechanisms in their skin. But this one is quite interesting. When they are born, they're, when they're hatchlings, they find a specific type. Oh no, wait, uh, I should rewind. What they can do, let me talk about what they can do first. Yes. When they swim in the evening um, through the ocean, they cast a shadow from the moonlight. Mm -hmm. And so fish, they see that and they see, oh, there's a shadow and they just eat them. Yes. So they figured out how to compensate for that. They uh, um, are bioluminescent on their bottom. <laughs> so, um, so they compensate exactly the moonlight and the stars. That's insane. It's like it's a totally Harry insane. Potter invisibility cloak. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an level. invisibility cloak. And they're like these little sort of uh, invertebrates. And, um, and that alone is pretty crazy. Yes. But this is how they do it. They, they don't, they're not bioluminescent. Inside of them, they have a special organ. And that organ hosts bacteria and they're bioluminescent. And they don't, unlike the insect, they don't live there forever. But the little hatchlings, when they're born, um, they need to find them in the ocean. They float around in the ocean, these bacteria, and they just take them. And then these bacteria, they are transported through sp specific pathways into this organ. Now, this pathway is also open to other bacteria, but the, the little squid makes sure that only the right bacteria get to this organ. I don't know how that works, but they manage to do it. And once the bacteria are there, they, they find nice nutrients and they replicate and multiply and build this luminescent organ. And then you could think, okay, that's fine. We're done. Now I have my luminescent organ and I can you know, have my uh, invisibility cloak. But they don't do that. Every evening, they get rid of 90% of uh, these bacteria and just put them back in the ocean. Yes. So other hatchlings can find them. Yeah. And the remaining 10%, they grow again and multiply and form the organ. So they, they repeat this. And not only do they collaborate with the bacteria, they also share them with the next generation this way. It's pretty crazy. That is unbelievable. I mean, it's I, insane. you know, like one, one of my arguments for, for the awesomeness of science is, is that no artist could have come up with quantum mechanics, no right. human imagination. Only nature could give you something yes. so nuts and mad. And, 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 and so, so I use that as a kind of example of the poetry of nature or that human, you know, like that somehow as if science is, is boring and human creativity is exciting. But, but this seems to me to be the kind of, you know, biology example that's so crazy that whoever says there's intelligent design have to be like, yes, I mean, no one would design this. It's so right. genius. You can't design like, it. It's totally nuts. Yeah. Like whatever kind of, uh, what, what is it? Anthropomorphic God that they have in mind. Well, it's, it's not yeah, how they, it's they totally would nuts. have done it. That's this God, right? right? Exactly. Uh, one more thing. One more. Give me yes, one yes, more. Yes. It's a, because it. it's, I was just thinking about it because I thought it was also crazy. I was thinking about photosynthesis, which is a plant thing, right? Or one yeah. like, specific type of bacteria do that too. 
Um, but there's this worm. I can't remember the name of it. It has a mouth, yeah. but it doesn't have a digestive, di you know, a digestion tract or like, yes. you know, it doesn't have guts. It just has a mouth. Yes. And when it's born with its mouth, it eats a specific type of algae. And they crawl under, you know, these cells, they crawl under the skin of that worm and the worm turns green. And there they do photosynthesis. And once the worm has done it, it changes its mouth, it just loses it. So this worm never eats. It just uses the, you know, <laughs> photosynthetic uh, algae to provide all it requires. Yes. So it's a, it's a worm that has lost its entire digestion system and uses its mouth only in the beginning of its life and then loses that too, just to, you know, gather photosynthetic plants that live under the skin. It's pretty crazy. I mean, that's another example that, you know, you could, could come up with this. Yes, Dirk, you're beginning to, to convince me why um, biology uh, is fun and, uh, and uh, that, that everyone uh, should work on this. So, this yeah. is so great. I have, I have a whole page of questions for you that we never got to. Uh, so we'll have to do it again, but I enjoyed it so much. Um, so exciting. Read the paper and the book. I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll get on it.